listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to the reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 16th. I'm Mel from Drake University. Here is our first story. The first story is titled, Hurrah's $22 Million Investment by David Golbitz from the nonpareilonline.com. When El Dorado Resorts bought Caesars Entertainment in July 2020, one of the first things executives did was take stocks of which of the newly acquired properties were most in need of upkeep, and Hurrah's Council Bluffs Hotel and Casino made the cut. Caesars president and CEO Anthony Serrano and CEO Tom Reeg knew that they were really going to have to focus on the properties they needed, capital investment, and they've been deprived of for so many years. Thomas Roberts, Senior Vice President and General Manager of Hurrah's and Horseshoe Council Bluffs, said in an interview with the Daily Nonpareil, we are really utilizing those investments, our brick-and-mortar footprint, to really be shining stars in each market that we're in. In a February 10th press release, Caesars Entertainment announced plans for a $22 million investment in Hurrah's Council Bluff, which is in addition to the $9 million hotel and gaming company already invested in 2022. The new plans include an expansion of the gaming floor, remodeled hotel rooms, and an improved sportsbook lounge where bettors can watch live sports and gamble in comfort. The first major addition will open to open will be the Guy Fieri's Kitchen and Bar, a $4 million restaurant that is scheduled to open in May 2023. It is the only celebrity restaurant in any of the casinos in Iowa, Robert said. So that's huge for us to have that in our backyard. That's going to be a great amenity. Fieri, restaurateur and television personality, is known for hosting a variety of series on the Food Network, including Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives which featured iconic Omaha restaurant Amato's in 2009. The story is paired with a picture of the restaurant of Guy Fieri's restaurant at the Council Bluffs Hotel. Guy Fieri's kitchen and bar is set to open in May at Hurrah's Council Bluffs Hotel and Casino. I think that it's going to be a big driver because I believe if you look at Guy Fieri's name, it's so incredibly strong all over this country, Robert said. The needed hotel renovation could begin this winter, with completion expected in spring 2024. When you think about our hotel rooms, the volume of people that come and stay on property, our rooms get worn pretty quickly, Robert said. So I think for us, we're excited because now you're going to be able to go out with this brand new hotel product, and it really kind of fits the property. We've done all this work on the outside, and when you come in, now you've got a brand new hotel, you've got this brand new restaurant, so those two things really fit together. The hotel will be opening during the $12 million, the hotel will be open during the $12 million renovation, which will be done floor by floor, Robert said. Construction for the gaming floor expansion will probably get underway toward the start of the 2023 Stir Cove concert season, Robert said. The $6 million expansion will add 200 new slot machines and will feature the renovated sports book. When you think about the revenue that can be generated from a concert and you have 4,000 people on the lawn out there and they get done with the concert, some of them want to come in and gamble. And at the end of the day, there's 500 slot machines and you're not getting any more than 500. 
Robert said, if we got 25% of the people off the lawn and they come into game and we don't have any more gaming spaces, so this extra 200 slot machines is going to be huge for us. Robert's envisions patrons being able to enjoy a night out, dining at a nice restaurant, maybe attending a concert, followed by some gaming all in one place. I think that is what we are trying to create is. That is our one-stop shop package, Robert said. The previous $9 million investment included exterior energy-efficient LED lighting, an enhanced digital marquee, and directional signage, and improved landscaping design. In total, Caesars Entertainment will have invested more than $31 million in Hurrah's Council Bluffs in just three years. The enhancements at Hurrah's Council Bluffs further exhibit Caesars Entertainment commitment to gaming at the state of Iowa. Caesars president and COO Anthony Carano said in the press release, We are dedicated to enhancing and upgrading our operations at all locations, and we're excited to continue our investment in several new phases of renovation and expansion in Council Bluffs. The renovation and expansion is also expected to create new jobs and add millions to local and state gaming tax revenues, which can then be funneled to organizations like Iowa West Foundation for reinvestment in the community. You're seeing that money gets funneled into the government for taxes, the payroll taxes that we pay as well to help our community grow and develop the way it needs to. The next story is titled, Iowa Senate Advances Proposal to Reduce Property Taxes by Tom Barton from Lee Gazette, Des Moines Bureau. <laughs> Iowa State Senate Republicans advanced a bill Tuesday aimed at simplifying and reducing property taxes that representatives of Iowa public schools, cities, and counties warn will lead to public service cuts. Lawmakers held a subcommittee hearing on Senate Study Bill 1124 by Senator Dan Dawson, Republican from Council Bluffs, who chairs the Iowa Senate's Committee on Tax Policy. Dawson's bill would cap cities and counties' general property tax levies and reduce the value at which properties are assessed. The bill consolidates property tax levies that fund local government operations and requires all city and county governments to operate under general levy rates on property tax assessments set in 1975, while providing some exceptions, plus a yearly growth rate to account for inflation. The bill also phases out the public education and recreation tax levy used by schools for items like new playground equipment before and after school programming, summer school programming, adult education, and community swimming pools. Dawson said that those items can be funded through local option sales, and service tax for school infrastructure. Iowans want quality services for the property taxes. Iowans have also said that their property taxes are too high and the system is stacked against them, and they want a better seat at the table, Dawson said. He called the bill and others tackling tackling property tax policy as a blueprint meant to spark a constructive conversation to make the property tax systems better and fair for the taxpayers. The study bill before us today is the first part in reforming our system, repairing our levy system, and addressing head-on the massive assessment spikes that our homeowners and business owners will see in their assessment letters coming in the mail starting next month, Dawson said. Mayors, city administrators, county supervisors, 
county sheriffs, and public school officials said the bill undermines local control and hinders their ability to respond to the needs of the community. Davenport Mayor Mike Matson, chair of the Metropolitan Coalition that represents Iowa's largest cities, including Cedar Rapids, said the bill limits the ability of cities to capture new tax growth to pay for basic services, discouraging a city from growing. Bondurant City Administrator Marquetta Oliver warned the bill will hamstring the state's effort to attract and retain a quality workforce if communities are unable to pay for the amenities and safe streets residents want and expect. Oliver said the bill would cause the city to lose the equivalent of 42% of its law enforcement budget. Taxpayer advocacy groups, the Iowa Farm Bureau, Iowa Association of Realtors, and Iowa Business Council argue property tax collections in the state have increased well beyond inflation and population growth. Taxpayers are having to make tough decisions every single day when they're going to the grocery store or pay the kids' child care bills, said Victoria Sinclair with Iowans for Tax Relief. It's time that our cities make some tough decisions and start cutting taxes for these folks. Frankly, our state legislator and our government, our governor, done a great job of keeping income taxes low and have led by example. Now they're asking sub- subdivisions of the state to do the same. Senator Pam Yocum, Democrat from Dubuque, called for a broader discussion that might let local governments diversify their revenue streams so perhaps we can reduce local government reliance on property taxes to fund police, fire emergency services, and other functions of local government. I believe if we really want to reform our property tax system in a meaningful way and simplify it, make it more transparent, more responsive to the needs of the people, that we need to do it very thoughtfully, Yoakum said. Senator Kerry Kochler, Republican from Dyersville, noted that when lawmakers moved mental health care funding from local property taxes to the state, some counties did not pass those savings on to taxpayers. I love our local governments. I know you all work diligently, but we're contributing to here with Iowans coming to ask us, coming to us asking for help, and that's why we are all here, Kochler said. It's going to be turbulent waters, but I'm happy to sign this out today because the conversation needs to continue. House Republicans have also proposed different ways to reduce property taxes. On the front page of the newspaper, there's a picture of several geese in a lake, and it is captioned, Gathering Before the Snow. Canada geese gather in the water and atop the thinning ice at Lake Manawa State Park on Wednesday, February 15, 2023. Snow is expected to fall overnight, continuing into this morning, mainly before 10 a.m., according to the National Weather Service. The next story is titled, More Bluff Students Score Above Average on Winter Math and Reading Tests by Tim Johnson from the Nonpareil. Council Bluffs Community School District saw significant improvements in math and reading proficiency and a small drop in science achievement from fall 2022 to winter 2023 on its measures of academic progress exams. The tests, which measure overall performance and growth, are administered every fall, winter, and spring for students in kindergarten through 10th grade. The district tracks the percentage of students scoring in the average, high average, and high ranges each time the MAP tests are administered. From fall 2022 to winter 2023, 
the percentage of students who scored in the average, high average, or high range on the math test increased by 2.1 percentage points, according to data presented by Tracy Matthews, Chief Academic Officer. During a Board of Education meeting Monday, district-wide, 60% of all students tested scored in the top three bands. The national average is 50%. We were very pleased to see improvement on our general math performance, she said. We have an increase in all but two grade levels. A few cohorts have been implementing new math curriculum, Matthew said. I couldn't be prouder of especially our teachers, who have really leaned on those math lessons. Meeting our students where they are, Superintendent Vicki Murillo said. Performance in 6th and 10th grades decreased by less than 1%, while it stayed about the same in 7th grade, according to a chart Matthews displayed during her presentation. The majority of students reached their growth targets in all but 6th grade, and the majority of students in every grade made some growth, with the average per grade ranging from 59% in ninth grade to 98% in kindergarten. An even larger improvement was seen in reading, where the percentage of students in the top three bands rose by 3.37 percentage points. Across the district, 61% of the students tested reached the top three bands. The percentage of students meeting their growth targets ranged from 58% in 6th grade and 10th grade to 70% in kindergarten, with the number falling below 50% only in 6th, 7th, and 10th grades. Half or more of the students in each grade achieved some growth, with the average ranging from 50% in 9th and 10th grades to 95% in kindergarten. In science, the percentage of students scoring proficient or better fell by 1.78%. Overall, 61% of district students tested scored in average, high average, or high categories. We don't see any large drops in any of those grade levels, Matthew said. Growth figures were not provided for science. The next story is titled, Council Bluff School Board Moves to Address Repairs at Two District Schools by Tim Johnson. This story is paired with a picture of the outside of an elementary school captioned, though not quite 12 years old, College View Elementary School at 1225 College Road has developed numerous leaks, according to school district officials. They hope to remedy that this summer. The picture is taken by Joe Shearer, and the article was written by Tim Johnson. The Council Bluffs Community School District is seeking bids on two executive repair projects Officials hope can be completed this summer and is partnering with the City of Council Bluffs on another. The Board of Education held a public hearing on the repair projects before its meeting Tuesday night. One is to repair the roof at College View Elementary, which has developed numerous leaks according to the Board of Education materials. Materials used when the building was constructed in 2011 have deteriorated, causing water infiltration into the building. A printed explanation stated, the original architect, Beringer, has agreed to assist us in addressing the issue without charging us fees for their labor. BCDM estimates the total project cost will be between $220,000 and $260,000. The repairs will will require replacing the building's cornices with brick masonry. Board materials stated, 
If all goes as planned, the board will award a contact will award a contract during the March 14th meeting. Construction will start on May 30th and reach final completion by August 18th. The project will be will be paid for with revenue from the district's physical plant and equipment levy. Repairs are also needed to the Kim Middle School track, which has numerous holes and other problems, according to board materials. Cracks in the track are getting wider, and drains stick up above the ground level, which could be a tripping hazard, said Jared Olson of HGM. Repairs are also needed to the Kim Middle School track, which has numerous holes and other problems, according to the school board materials. Cracks in the track are getting wider, and drains stick up above ground level, which could be a tripping hazard, said Jared Olson of HGM. Part of an access path needs to be replaced with new asphalt, and the rubber on the track needs to be replaced, he said. HGM Associates has written up specifications for the work, and the cost of the project is estimated at $55,000, or $550,000, including HGM's fees. Payments will come from revenue from the school district's PPEL fund and the Secure and Advanced Vision for Education Sales Tax. The plan is for the board to award the project during its March 28th meeting, work to begin in June and completion to be reached by August 4th. In other business, the board approved a memorandum of understanding with the City of Council Bluffs for paving work along Avenue F next to the new Early Learning Center. The district had budgeted for handicap-accessible walkways across Avenue F from the Early Learning Center, but found that the city was planning to repave the street. Rather than to try to schedule two contractors to do overlapping projects, the district will reimburse the city for adding the walkways to the contractor's work. The city project will include reconstruction of Avenue F from 8th Street to 9th Street, with new roadway, sewers, water lines, and sidewalks in the city right of the way. The cost of the walkways for the school district is estimated at $80,500, but the district will reimburse the city based on the actual cost. The next story is titled, Lawmakers Advance Bill Loosening Child Labor Laws by Caleb McCullough from the QC Times. More jobs would be open to Iowa teenagers under a bill House lawmakers advanced on Tuesday. The bill would allow 14-year-olds to work in freezers and meat coolers, load non-power tools to and from vehicles, and work in laundry and detasseling. 15-year-olds would be able to do work like loading and unloading groceries from trucks, stocking shelves with items up to 30 pounds, and working as a lifeguard. People aged 16 and 17 would also be allowed to serve drinks at bars and restaurants. Teens could also receive a waiver from the Department of Workforce Development or Education to work in industries like construction, manufacturing, and mining if the job is part of a work-based learning program and meets certain safety conditions. Business groups supported the legislation during a public hearing saying the bill would help address Iowa's workforce shortages and provide students with a hands-on way to study vocational skills before leaving high school. The bill advanced with Republican support. Representative John Wills, Republican from Spirit Lake, said the changes would allow teens to learn important lessons at earlier ages. 
We need to give our kids a chance. We need to give our kids the ability to learn life lessons, he said. But several organizations raise concern about the bill, particularly the provisions allowing miners to work on construction sites and manufacturing with a waiver. Opponents said the loosening of the laws could put children's, children in dangerous situations. We're not that far from dozens of children working in a factory assembling parts, said Peter Hurd, a lobbyist for the Iowa chapter of the American Federation of Labor, ESG Investing. The state would be barred from investing money with firms that have environmental, social, and governance, or ESG, investment. Strategies at the expanse of maximizing returns under a bill proposed by Governor Kim Reynolds that lawmakers advanced Tuesday. State money could also not go to investment firms that boycott fossil fuel, production, agriculture, and firearm companies. Republican lawmakers advanced the bill, Senate Study Bill 1094, out of a subcommittee on Tuesday. The bill is in reaction to some large investment firms promoting investment strategies that consider the social and environmental impact of investments. Republican Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has proposed similar legislation this year. Reynolds legislative liaison Molly Severin said the strategy promotes a woke ideology in public hearing on the bill Tuesday. ESG practices are not only legally suspect, they are financially reckless, Severin said. We must ensure that ESG has no place in our state's finances. Representatives for state's pension, state pensions said their investment strategy is already aimed solely at maximizing returns during a public hearing Tuesday and do not invest with ESG in mind. Gun Control Grant Iowa will receive $2.48 million in a grant funded by the bipartisan Safer Communities Act, a gun control law President Joe Biden signed last year. The grant will fund intervention programs like extreme risk protection orders in which a court can remove a person's access to a firearm if they pose a threat to themselves or others. It can also support drug, mental health, and veterans treatment courts. Iowa's grants will go to the Governor's Office of Drug Control Policy, and the office will create a grant application for distributing the funds, according to a White House spokesperson. Reynolds Funds Fitness Centers Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds announced plans to create three elementary and middle school fitness centers as part of a campaign aimed at addressing rising mental illness and childhood obesity. Reynolds' office announced the plan Tuesday, a partnership with the National Foundation for Governors Fitness Councils. Schools can apply to receive a fitness center through the program between now and March 26th, according to Reynolds' office. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 16th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines, Iowa. I'm Mel from Drake University. Iris volunteers to love love to hear from our listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any Iris program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. We will now read through today's obituary. The first is of Charles L. Nichols. Charles, or Chuck L. Nichols, age 89, passed away on February 14, 2023. Chuck was born 
February 28, 1933, to Arthur and Mildred Nichols, living most of his life in Council Bluffs. He was a veteran who served in the U.S. Army during the Korean War. When he returned to civilian life, he married the love of his life, Opal Foote, on June 7, 1955. They were blessed with three children. Chuck was preceded in death by his parents, brothers, Bernard, Kenneth, and Paul, sister Patricia, half-brother James, daughter Kathleen, son Jeffrey, and granddaughter Brandy. He is survived by his wife, Opal, at Azria Health Longview, Missouri Valley, Missouri Valley Iowa, half-brother John Nichols, half-sister Bessie Mallory, daughter Jenny Reinig of Missouri Valley, Iowa, grandchildren Chuck, Allen, Linda, Valen, and Logan, great-grandchildren Jenna, Shelby, Ethan, Rain, Cash, and August. Memorial visitation Sunday, 1 to 3, at the Meyer Funeral Home. Boonma Letitia Hansine. Boonma Letitia Hansine, age 82, passed away February 10, 2023. She married Robert Hansine on March 25, 2013, in Las Vegas, Nevada. She was a baseball fan, especially for the Boston Red Sox. Boonma was preceded in death by her stepson, Kevin. She will be missed by her husband, Robert, or Bob, stepson, Chris, stepdaughter, Adrian Shepherdson, grandchildren, Elle, Miranda, Kayla, and Emily, other family and friends. Visitation with the family is Friday, February 17th, 2023, from 5 to 6.30 p.m. at Hoy Kalnowski Funeral Home, 1221 North 16th Street in lieu of flowers, memorials are designated to Jenny Edmondson Foundation or St. Croix Hospice. From the opinion section, this story is titled Library and Abundance of Resource for Community from the desk of Mayor Matt Walsh. For more than 140 years, the Council Bluffs Public Library has met the changing needs of our residents and businesses. Longtime library director Mildred Smock oversaw the old Carnegie Library on most Saturday mornings. My mom would arrive early at the library with kids in tow. She dropped us off on the second floor at the youth department for an hour of free babysitting, otherwise known as Saturday morning story time. Once relieved of her parental responsibilities, mom would head downstairs and sort through the library's card catalog, organized by the Dewey Decimal System, to locate a book or two for herself. Our beautiful library is a significant community resource for every age group where they can find access to information, spiritual inspiration, or simply gather together and exchange thoughts and ideas. The Council Bluffs Library supports almost 49,000 individual cardholders throughout Potawatomi County and is open to the public 80 hours a week on any given month. At least 14,000 cardholders will visit the library to check out some 21,000 items. The library also subscribes to 42 database research engines covering various topics that help focus and simplify your information requests. Research confirms that spending time while reading aloud helps to create a strong parent-child bonds and promotes healthy brain development. Children who are read to often have improved language and listening skills, experience stronger emotional connections to their loved ones, 
and gain a lifelong love of reading. Toward that end, youth materials are still the most popular library commodity, with about 7,000 checkouts per month, followed by adult fiction and then audio slash visual materials. Homebound library patrons can get their books and materials delivered directly to their homes, and many of these resources are carried in both English and Spanish. Every student attending Council Bluffs Community School District and the Lewis Central School District has access to a free student library account. The library isn't just about books. This month alone, there are over 70 programs focused on various discussion topics that are uniquely targeted toward adults, teens, or children. Did you know that as a library card holder, you can check out community discovery passes for free admissions to multiple attractions, including the Durham Museum, Fontenelle Forest, the Henry Dorley Zoo, Potawatomi County's Conservation Parks, the Lauritsen Gardens, El Museum Latino, and the Omaha Children's Museum. You can also check out board games, video games, unique cake pans, art, bicycle repair kits, backyard movie kits, native seeds for seasonal planting, and a free bike rental from Heartland Bike Share. Many would be surprised to learn that the library also has a makerspace lab that provides some of the latest in modern manufacturing technology, including 3D printing and scanning, video recorders, cameras, and editing software, audio production equipment, media conversion capabilities, robotics, and specialty printing. You can even check out a sewing machine to take home. Teen Central provides teens access to many popular gaming devices, including Oculus Virtual Reality. Ancillary community services provided at the library include printing and scanning, notary services, a summertime community lunch site for children, a monthly Red Cross blood drive, and organizations that help with income tax preparation. The library hosts a community-wide reading challenge called One Community Reads to raise community awareness of important issues through a book selection that supports discussion, awareness, and action. The theme this year is The War is Your Garden, and it focuses on community gardens and ways to build community and fight food insecurity. Thanks to the work of our library and their partnership with Raise Me to Read, every second grader in Council Bluffs, Lewis Central, and St. Albert will receive a free copy of the children's book as part of One Community Reads. The library also hosts the Summer Reading Challenge and lots of summer programming for kids. The Iowa legislator has proposed multiple statutory changes that could make continued funding for a library or anything other than the very minimum of essential city services challenging to achieve. City Hall certainly hopes that the Iowa Senate, Iowa House, and Governor come to realize the Iowa residents want and deserve more from local government than stripped down bare-bone municipal services. I am proud of the work that our Council Bluffs Public Library does. We have dozens of de dedicated library staff who are committed to increasing access to information and resources. If you haven't visited the library recently, I encourage you to stop by. You can find more information, check out virtual materials, reserve books, and view their events calendar at councilbluffslibrary.org. This story is titled, Council Bluffs Restaurant Tour Joins National Board. 
Matt Johnson, the owner of Barley's in Council Bluffs, has been inducted into the National Restaurant Association's Board of Directors. The restaurant industry is the second largest private employer in our country. I am honored and humbled to have been elected to the National Restaurant Board of Directors, Johnson said in a press release. Bringing an independent voice from a Midwestern state is an important is important in a room full of national franchises and companies with household names. I look forward to looking working with others to promote and protect this great industry that I love. Founded in 1919, the National Restaurant Association is the leading business association for the restaurant industry, which comprises nearly 1 million restaurant and food service outlets and a workforce of 14.5 million employees. Its mission is to strengthen operations, mitigate risk, and develop talent, advance and protect business vitality through advocacy and drive knowledge and collaboration. Johnson joined the National Board after having served on the Iowa Restaurant Association's Board from 2012 to 2021. He was named Iowa Restaurateur of the Year in 2020. No state is guaranteed a seat on the National Restaurant Association Board, Jessica Dunker, President and CEO of the Iowa Restaurant Association, said in the release. Matt's track record as an effective advocate for the state's independent restaurant community will now extend to national news that will help independent operators across the country. Johnson is a Council Bluffs native, Iowa Western Community College alum, and member of the Board of Trustees and a graduate of the University of Nebraska at Omaha. He serves on the Council Bluffs, Bluffs Convention and Visitors Bureau Board and is a member of the 2022-23 Class of Leadership, Iowa. Johnson is a community visionary and regular volunteer, helping raise thousands for schools and local nonprofits over his more than 20 years in business. I will now read some of the sports section for February 16, 2023. Class 2A State Wrestling. Rams send four to quarters by Austin Heinen from the Nonpro. With day one of the Class 2A State Wrestling Tournament completed, the Glenwood Rams will send four of their initial eight state wrestlers onward to the quarterfinal round on Wednesday afternoon at the Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines. After seeing the Rams' first two wrestlers fall short, Rams coach Tucker Weber was pleased to have half his guys still in the hunt for a state championship and looks for those in the consolation bracket to still work toward big finishes. Despite starting a little slow, it's not bad at all, Weber said. Nerves may have gotten some of those who have not, who don't have as much experience here, but we battled back. A few of our wins got us some bonus points. We are happy to still have four moving on into quarters. Whenever your guys get some bonus team points, you're always happy. Hopefully, we can keep going on like that all week and get everyone on the podium. Junior Vinny Mayberry was the first of the bunch to earn his place as the defeated Alden Wall, as he defeated Alden Swanson by fall. One one minute, 20 seconds into the match. Mayberry was quick to get the first takedown, and after another takedown, the junior inched Swanson to his back to finish the match. That was the plan, to get there and finish the match quickly, Mayberry said. I've been working on those sorts of things a lot in practice and just worried about what was going on in the moment. At that moment, it felt like 
The more I squeezed, the more he let up, so I knew I could get the pin. Matt Beam pinned Ballard's Tucker Fitzthumb one minute, 17 seconds, into their match to seal his place in the quarters. Beam was looking for an opening to close the match quickly and did exactly that. It's good to go out there and get a quick pin. It really boosts your confidence, Beam said. My opponent was very flexible. He kept bouncing around and tried to stay off his shoulders, but I knew if I kept my patience and kept working that I could get the pin. CJ Carter had to go through the full six minutes, but still defeated Sue Center's Jack Sommerman by a 15-3 decision. Carter got the first takedown, but Zomermad rallied to tie the match early on at 3-3. However, Carter kicked it into gear and scored the final 12 points to run away with the win. I thought I had him pinned after that first takedown, Carter said. I didn't quite get him down right, and he rolled through me for a reverse. After that, I had to lock in and battle it out. That first match is always the hardest. You get the jitters, but once you get that first match done, you feel more confident for your next match. And I aim to get that state title this year. I've put a lot of work into this season, and I'm going to find a way to get it done. Soon after, Mason Kohler was the fourth and final Ram wrestler to lock in a spot in the quarterfinals. Juniors Britton Maxwell and Kellen Scott and sophomore Reeves Fobble all lost their first match of the day to move over to the consolation bracket. And junior Trent Patton pinned Cohen Reffer from Algana, but then lost his second match by fall early in the third period. The Class 2A state tournament will resume on Thursday at 1.30 p.m. at the Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines. This article is paired with several pictures of wrestling. The first one is captioned, Kirsten Thompson back wrestles at 126 for Underwood during the IHSAA 1A State Wrestling Tournament at Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines on Wednesday, February 15th. Also, David Hilton top wrestles at 152 for CB St. Albert during the IHSAA 1A State Wrestling Tournament at Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines on Wednesday. Girls Basketball Eagles Escape Valiant Vikings by Austin Heinen from the Nonpareil. Class 2A number 11 Underwood was never able to run away, but still did enough to escape an upset-minded AHSTW team 51-36 in Tuesday's Class 2A Region 8 quarterfinal round. Though the Vikings always kept themselves within striking distance throughout the game, Underwood stayed in control as the Eagles never trailed in this game, but still got quite a fight. I think it's a real testament to AHSTW, Eagles coach Andy Van Fossen said. Playing a team three times is always tough. Coach had them ready. Despite being undermanned, they still played hard. Our hats go off to them. They're going to be a tough out next year with all the returns they will have. But for now, we were able to maintain the lead and then got a small run and hopefully knocked off some rest, having a week off. The Eagles rebuilt some distance as they pulled ahead with a 7-0 run to lead by as much as 13. A late bucket from the Vikes trimmed it back down to 11 for the half. The Eagles knew that 30-19 halftime lead was anything but safe. The Eagles began 
heating up behind the arc as they hit three consecutive trays in the third quarter to go ahead by 15 heading into the final quarter. They came out and really tried to play fast base, and it shocked us a bit, Aaliyah Humphrey said. We adjusted a bit slow, but you have to give them credit for playing well. But overall, we adjusted enough to survive in advance, and that's what this time of year is all about. We've been working on our shots a lot lately, so it was encouraging to see some fall tonight. Elizabeth Jacobson said, no matter who we play next week, we have to keep working hard to keep winning these games. The Eagles played stout defense to fend off the Lady Bikes despite scoring just six points in the fourth quarter. Basketball is such a game of runs, and as and as well saw today, sometime a little 7-0 run is all it takes, Van Fossen said. You can build a lead or fall behind within a minute or two. We were fortunate enough to hit a couple of shots, but at this time of the year, it's literally survive in advance. Everyone knows something about somebody, so there's no surprises. It just comes down to execution. Jacobson led the Eagles with 14 points on the night, and Humphrey added another 10 points for Underwood. Delaney Gosshorn held led AHSTW with 10 points. The Eagles were adv- well advanced to play Cooper Catholic on Friday in Underwood at 7 p.m. Another story from the sports section, four eagles into quarters. It is paired with a picture of two boys wrestling labeled Avery Vack left wrestles at 106 for Underwood during Wednesday's IHSAA 1A state wrestling tournament at Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines. Trainers Gregory A. at HSTW's Lund, Riverside's Braun, also advance. By Austin Heinen. Day one of the Class 1A state wrestling tournament is in the books as seven area kids still have their hopes alive for a state title. Underwood had a strong day as four wrestlers earned a spot to wrestle in the state quarterfinals on Thursday. As Junior Maddox Nelson defeated Hudson's Blake Carolan by a 22-9 major decision, and junior Blake Allen defeated St. Albert's John Helton by a 12-4 decision. Senior Gable Porter kept things rolling as he defeated Lake Mills' Steve Brandenburg by a technical fall 16-0. Winning the first match to Porter was great, but all in all is just another step towards his ultimate goal and is already thinking about his next opponent on Thursday. It's not necessarily a weight off the shoulders, but more about taking another step, Porter said. You just have to keep going. Don't think about it much. I'm not not done here. Got plenty more to fight on. Junior Carson Thompson also earned the right to wrestle in Thursday's quarterfinal round as he won two matches in the Wells Fargo Arena. His first win was against Tri-Center sophomore Brant Freeberg by technical fall 26 to 21-6. 21-6. Thompson followed that with a win by fall over Akron Westfield's Jaden Friedrichs late in the second period. I knew I could get it the whole time. It was just about getting the shot I needed, Thompson said. I had him on his back most of that match, but he made me work as hard as I could for it. I was starting to go for the tech fall, but a plan, but a pin works too. Also for the Eagles, Hayden Hewen lost his match by fall, 1-13 in the match, and freshman Avery Vassett 
Vasek lost by fall in his first match. Trainer AHSTW and Riverside will all have one wrestler in tomorrow's quarterfinals. For trainer, Dan Gregory needed just needed just shy of a minute and a half to win his match by fall over Durant's Nolan DeLong. Gregory plans to get plenty more wins before his tournament is over. I'm just trying to go out, work my stuff, and take it one match at a time. Gregory said, that first match on the first day is always the hardest, and whenever you come out of it with a win, it's a big relief. I'm eager to wrestle again tomorrow. Also for the Cardinals, junior Danny Kinsella won his first match over South Central Calhoun's Brock Natris, but lost his second to Don Bosco's Caden Knack by an 11-4 decision. Senior Rafe Geyer fell in his first match to jump over the consolation bracket. Junior Levi Young also lost his first match to move on to the consolation bracket. Freshman Jet Swornson lost his first match by fall in the second period, and sophomore Zach Robbins lost by an 8-1 decision. AHSTW sophomore Henry Lund battled through two matches to earn two wins on Tuesday. After winning two thrilling matches, Lund is eager for more action tomorrow. That first win can boost your confidence a lot, Lund said. I got him on his back and held him tight enough to where he couldn't move and stuck his shoulders to the mat. Now I'm moving on to day two. I'm ready for my next match tomorrow. Also for the Vikes, sophomore Caden Baxter lost his first first match and will wrestle in the consolation bracket tomorrow. Riverside will also send one to the quarterfinals, namely Davis Bramum, who defeated El Burnett's Atlee Dewitt by an 11-3 decision. After a slow first period for Brahman, the sophomore began to find his shots in the second period and then ran away with the match. I just went and did my stuff, Brahman said. After taking him down the first time, I felt a lot more confident about what I could do and then finished the match. The first win is always nice. It helps shake out some of the nervousness and makes you ready for more. Also for Riverside, Caden Forrestal lost his first match to fall in the consolation bracket. Freshman Jack Brannon lost by fall in his first match, and sophomore Kellen Oliver lost his match by a 6-3 decision. St. Albert will have both wrestlers, seniors, David Helton and John Helton wrestle in consolations tomorrow as well. John won his first match over Lennox's Chase England by a 12-7 decision. It started as a mental game in the first period, and whenever you get knocked down, you got to get back up, John Helton said. He got the first score, but I knew I just had to get up. That scores one and take him down to take the lead. I got it done. Helton lost his second round match to Underwood's Blake Allen. Tri-Center's Freeburg will wrestle in the Constellations, as will his teammate, Junior Gryphon McDermott, who lost his match by fall in the second period. The Class 1A tournament will resume on Thursday at 9 a.m. at the Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines. We will now finish with the story from the lifestyle section. Dinner almost gets chased down the drain. Every well-seasoned cook knows dinner can go wrong in many ways. You're missing a key ingredient. That meat didn't thaw. Everything is taking a lot longer than you planned. Or you are at the kitchen sink, 
suddenly hear a thunder in behind you, spin around and see a large black lab covered in soap suds, shaking water as he gallops through the house. Her oldest grand was prepping dinner and minding her little sister as the rest of the family was heading home. Big sister had told little sister to take a bath. Little sister said okay, but only if the dog ranger took a bath too. Little, little sister has a voice soft as a summer breeze. Big sister, prepping chicken marsala, did not hear little sister. Why would she? She was browning chicken, tending mushrooms, chopping parsley, focused on a meal that would be a fine accomplishment for a 13-year-old. Her concentration was broken by the wet dog racing from one end of the house to the other, chased by little sister in a swimsuit yelling, get back in the tub. Ranger weighs 80 pounds. You brace yourself against the wall, an SUV, or a side of the house when Ranger says hello. Sometimes, when the whole family is at their place, our son will shout, Everyone up on the deck, we're going to let the dog loose. Just say the 80-pound black lab is high-spirited. The wisp of a little sister weighs 39. Asked how a girl coaxes a dog twice her size to get in a bathtub, her eyes dance, and she whispers a jar of dog treats. The truth is, the dog will do anything for this little girl. He shadows her, guards her hole, guards her while she sleeps and licks tears from her face when she cries. Getting him in the tub, soaking him down, had gone well. But when she started to rinse with the shower head, he bolted. Once he bounded through the kitchen, his sister and little sister chased the wet dog, shaking water. They looped around the table, into the family room, around the sofa, over the sofa, back to the kitchen, and down the hall, and finally funneled him into the bathroom. The little one noted that he seemed to calm down once they pulled the shower curtain. Maybe all he wanted was a little privacy. Then, they did what any responsible kids would do. They closed the bathroom door and waited for Mom to arrive home. They thought Mom might want to hose the dog down clean the dirty tub, and dig the dog hair out of the clogged drain. Rule number one, always leave the good stuff for mom. The chicken marsala made it to the table, but the bread in the oven burned during the chase. In any case, dinner smelled wonderful, and Ranger, who had been lathered with a lavender-scented soap, smelled pretty good, too. Lori Borgman is a columnist, author, and speaker. Her book, What Happens at Grandma's Stays at Grandma's, is now available. Email her at lauriborgman.com. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 16th. The Nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 3 p.m. Iris volunteers love to hear from our listeners. If you have any comments or questions about today's broadcast or any Iris program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877 877- I'm Mel from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for listening.
in the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. At high doses, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like diclofenac, ibuprofen, or naproxen may increase the risk of kidney problems. The study that revealed this used de-identified medical records of more than 750,000 active-duty U.S. Army soldiers. Consequently, these were active, young, and middle-aged adults. During the time of the study, from 2011 through 2014, nearly 18% of these soldiers got a prescription for one to seven doses of an NSAID pain reliever in a month. Another 16% were prescribed more than seven doses in a month. Fewer than 1% of these people were subsequently diagnosed with acute or chronic kidney disease. Nevertheless, the rate of kidney trouble was about 20% higher among people who had received high-dose NSAIDs than among those who had taken none. The authors described the increased risk as modest but statistically significant. Another class of drugs that can lead to kidney injury is proton pump inhibitors. A data mining initiative of the FDA's Adverse Event Reporting System analyzed kidney-related side effects among 43,000 people who took a drug such as esomeprazole, lansoprazole, or omeprazole. Approximately 8,000 people taking a histamine 2 blocker such as ranitidine or famotidine served as controls since they take these drugs for similar symptoms. The researchers found that 5.6% of people on PPIs alone had a kidney-related side effect, while only 0.7% of those on H2 blockers did. Chronic kidney disease was 28 times more likely, and acute kidney injury was four times more likely among people taking PPIs. While this analysis shows association, not causation, There are previous studies linking PPIs and kidney damage. There's growing concern about a mysterious infectious disease that has been spreading among the wild deer population for decades. Scientists call it CWD, or chronic wasting disease. Hunters refer to this condition as zombie deer disease. It can also affect elk and moose. The CDC reports that this infectious disease has spread to wildlife in 24 states and two Canadian provinces. CWD was first detected in Colorado among captive deer in the 1960s and in the wild deer population in the 1980s. It's now affecting deer in the Midwest, Southwest, and some parts of the East Coast. The disease appears to be caused by a prion infection reminiscent of mad cow disease. An infectious disease expert at the University of Minnesota has warned that hunters who eat contaminated deer meat may eventually develop the human equivalent of chronic wasting disease. Shoulder replacement surgery is becoming increasingly common. Now researchers writing in the BMJ say that patients should be warned that the risks are higher than originally thought. The investigators reviewed hospital and mortality records in the U.K., When men between 50 and 59 have this type of shoulder surgery, one in four will need further surgery on that shoulder within five years. In addition, older people who underwent this kind of surgical procedure experienced high rates of serious adverse events. One in nine older women and one in five older men had an infection, major blood clot, heart attack or stroke, or died within three months. The authors of the study encouraged their colleagues to counsel patients about the risks as well as the benefits of this kind of surgery. Drug interactions are a serious hazard in hospitals and the community. 
If patients receive prescriptions for incompatible medications, they can experience severe side effects that may even be life-threatening. Electronic medical records are intended to warn prescribers and pharmacists about potentially dangerous interactions, but many do so indiscriminately. The result is something called alert fatigue. If clinicians receive too many warnings, they may not pay attention to the really important ones. A team at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital reviewed their alert system. They removed unnecessary alerts and provided additional information to the most important ones. After they finished, they tracked clinicians' reactions. Alert overrides dropped by 40%. One important change linked alerts to the patient's laboratory data, making them much more targeted. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week.